0: I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to the 8th chapter of Romans, Romans chapter chapter 8. And we'll begin reading with verse 18. If I can uh, take a phrase from one of our hymns. Uh, Wonderful things in the Bible I see, this is the dearest that Jesus loves me. And uh, this is what this text uh, speaks about. And I would have to say, of all the texts in Scripture, all the wonderful things I see in the Word of God, this is the one that speaks most loudly to me. I, uh, this is one of my favorite texts. I love to teach it. I love to share it with people. I love to use it in counseling. It's my favorite text at, at, funeral, at uh, funeral services because it speaks so directly to people's needs. If you're here this morning with a lot of hurt and heartache, this is a passage that I know will bring comfort to you. What Paul does here in this section of of his book is to give us a perspective on pain. There are three ideas that uh, he speaks about. One is the future, the future prospect, the good prospect that uh, we have. Though the present may be painful, we have a glorious future. The second element that we need to uh, keep in mind is that the Holy Spirit himself who indwells us prays for us. When we're undergoing trial, we may not know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit knows and he prays for us according to the will of God. That's the second perspective we, we must maintain in our pain. And the third is that God has a good plan. God himself is good and the plan that he's working out in our life is very, very good. Now, those are the perspectives that uh, we need to maintain. Let's, uh, let's look at them in, in some detail. Verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You say, oh, oh come now, Paul, you, you couldn't possibly mean that. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like to have your husband walk out the door and never see him again. You don't know what it's like to cradle your dead baby in, in, in your arms. You can't possibly understand the feelings that, that, I, that I had and still have. You don't understand my diseased, racked body. You you can't really appreciate my pain. And it's true. We can't really appreciate one another's pain because pain is never tit for tat. We we never can equate one person's uh, pain with someone else's pain. Pain is something that only we understand. But Paul understood pain. All you have to do is read his epistles to know that. If you turn to 2 Corinthians, verse 12, he describes the various things that happened to him in his missionary journeys. He was beaten, he was battered, he was driven out of town, he was humiliated, he was embarrassed. He was stoned, he was imprisoned. He bore in his body, as he put it, the marks of the Lord Jesus. He bore those marks to, to his grave. He had all the aches and pains that, that you and I experience as a result of things done to our, our bodies. He understood very well. And I think, although I, I, I can't be sure, I'm, I'm, I think that Paul was either widowed or his wife must have left him at some point. We know that it was customary for members of the Sanhedrin to be married. Paul was a member of that, uh, that body in Israel, so he apparently was married at some point in his life. Whether his wife died or whether she left him when, when he became a Christian, and it's that he's referring to when he, when he describes himself as having suffered the loss of all things because of his faith. We just don't know. But a good educated guess is that Paul himself knew what it was to be separated from, from from a loving mate. He understood well. And yet Paul says that what I'm experiencing and what we all experience is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be ours when we see our Lord, when He comes to receive us, or when we go to be with Him. He's speaking of heaven. But the glorious thing that he describes here is not Heaven. You understand that? He's not speaking about us as spectators, but as participants in glory. If you read the text carefully, what Paul says is that my present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in me, in us. It's something that God is doing in the Apostle Paul. It's something that God is doing in all of us. He is making of us glorious beings. This is what John is referring to in, in his little uh, epistle. I read this this text to you or quoted it a number of times. I'd like to read it again. First John 3. Paul says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He loves us and he's brought us into the family. We are his children. The world—the reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. They didn't recognize Him as the Son of God. They may not recognize you as the Son of God because we don't look like sons of God today. We look like everyone else. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. Do you understand what Paul is saying? It doesn't make any difference how much uh, pain you bear in your body right now. Your, your body may be disease-ridden. You may be uh, chained to a wheelchair. You may have, have multiple sclerosis. You, you may be dying. You, you may have discovered that you have cancer. And those are terrible things to have happen to you. We, we don't minimize or diminish pain. But we recognize that our present suffering is not worth comparison to the glory that's ahead. The glorious thing that God is going to make of us, of you and me, when he changes our body to be like the body of our Lord Jesus. You won't have any more aches and pains. You won't have to worry about disease or death. Nor will you have to worry about the habits that uh, have uh, enslaved you for so long. The warped personalities, the psychoses, the neuroses, the, the, the things in us that haunt us and have disturbed us and distressed us and caused life to be hard and harsh almost from the very beginning. Paul says that, that they'll all be over. It'll be done. We won't have to worry about those things. We'll have a body like his. The word glory really means something that fills you with awe. And so to use our, uh, our contemporary idiom, what Paul is saying is that one of these days you're going to be totally awesome. As a matter of fact, uh, C.S. Lewis says that, he points out that we don't really deal with mortals. You have to keep that in mind. Because if one of these days we're all going to be uh, as glorious as God's Son... And if we could see ourselves now as we will be then, we would be tempted to fall down and worship. That's what Paul means. And that's what enables us to go through all the hurt and the the hardship and the tough things that that come our way because we know this isn't all there is. That's the answer to to the question, is this it? Is this all there is? No. No, there's glory on ahead. God is going to make something glorious out of us. Now, this is his thesis throughout the rest of of this section of Scripture. He wants us to understand that. Our present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. Now, uh, he moves back to the present. Uh, He talks about creation and the suffering of creation. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. We are the sons of God, not because of any merit on our part, but because God has brought us into the family on the basis of our Lord's sacrifice. All of creation is waiting for us to come into our own. I, I like the way uh, uh, J.B. Phillips translates this this phrase. He says, the whole creation stands on tiptoes, eagerly awaiting the time when the sons of God come into their own. That, that well expresses the idea of, of the verb, eagerly waiting. It means to crane the, the neck forward and To be observing carefully and waiting and watching for the sons of God to come into their own. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. He's describing the fall of creation. Man and, and, and all the rest of creation are linked together. When man fell, the whole creation fell. The world is not what God originally intended it to be. He's not trying to run the world right today. That's what Paul is saying. The, the world exists in a, in a fallen state. And not only is it fallen, it's falling apart. That's what he means when he says it's frustrated. The, the creation was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, the, the world is judged. It's under the judgment of God because of sin. Uh, in hope that uh, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, by creation, Paul means non-rational creation, everything apart from man, animals, rocks, mountains, streams, animate, inanimate creation. It fell when man fell and, uh, and is falling apart. That, that's what uh, physicists would call the, the second law of thermodynamics. The law of the infinite uh, increase of entropy, that that energy is becoming less and less uh, usable, it's degrading, everything is running downhill, it's decaying. That's what he means. And it's frustrating to creation. That's why creation sighs and moans and and carries on in its discordant way. That's why nature has become our enemy rather than our our friend. That's why we fear animals now instead of invoking fear in, in them. There's something desperately wrong with with creation. We're locked into the law of of entropy, and the whole thing is running downhill. It's decaying, and it groans. Things are not as they should be. But not only is creation decaying, we are decaying decaying as well. Uh, Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not only does creation or nature groan, but we groan as well. That is the human race. We rational beings in, in God's creation. We, we groan, we suffer, we struggle. Because we're a part of, of, of fallen creation. And not only does the human race suffer, we Christians suffer as well. That's what he means when he describes us as those that have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's not trying to develop a theology of the Holy Spirit here. He's simply telling us that we, we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We have the earnest of our inheritance. We already have the Spirit indwelling us. He's the down payment of everything that's coming to us when we're adopted as sons. Even Christians suffer. Now, as you know, there is a theology around, sometimes described as success theology, uh, which says that uh, God's plan is to make you filthy rich if you follow Him. He'll put you in clover. All you have to do is is generate enough faith, and you can be healed of any ill. It's not God's plan for you to be sick. Uh, I have a friend, a friend who says he's planning to rewrite the Narnia tales based upon success theology, one of which you will call the Lion, the Witch, and the Neiman Marcus wardrobe. And uh, it's a story of uh, children who encounter talking animals who teach them how to make a fortune on the, in the commodities market. Uh, this uh, same friend has rewritten Jesus Loves Me uh, to reflect this uh, prosperity doctrine. Jesus Loves Me, This I See. Or he gives Cadillacs to me. Little minks belong to me. I am... Uh, uh, no, that's not it. A little... Well, I can't make it a rhyme. But anyway, the last line says... <laughs> the, last, the last line says, I am rich and it ain't wrong. Now, uh, that's, a, that's a totally erroneous concept. It, it, it's, it, it is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us clearly that creation suffers... And we suffer because we are, we are locked into creation. Now, that's realism. Paul and all the rest of the apostles, our Lord Jesus, they're ultimate realists. They tell us things as they really are. Some Christians suffer intensely. Others have a, an easier road. Some Christians become wealthy. Some live in poverty all of their lives. Some non-Christians become wealthy. Some live in poverty all their lives. Non-Christians become sick, they contract cancer, so do Christians. As a matter of fact, Chuck Colson made a, an interesting comment in an article a few weeks ago in which he pointed out, uh, by the way, he, uh, Colson himself has cancer or had cancer, and it was in light of that discovery that he made this comment. he had come to the conclusion that for every non-Christian that contracts cancer, a Christian can t- contracts cancer so that the world can see the difference. And he may have something there. If we think we're going to go through life and get away scot-free without uh, ache and pain and heartache, then we simply do not understand the nature of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen universe. We ourselves are fallen beings. We're suffering the consequences of of that fall, and we will hurt. We will have pain. But what Paul tells us is that one of these days, that law of entropy is going to be reversed, and we're going to come into our own. He uses two metaphors to describe that process. He says we, are, we will be redeemed. That's a, that's a word taken out of the marketplace. It describes the, the action of, uh, of slave owners buying a slave and out of slavery and, and then setting them free, liberating them. We'll be set free from, from the slavery of our bodies to the law of, of entropy and, and decay. And furthermore, he says, we'll be adopted. Now, when we think of adoption, we think of something entirely different uh, from the practice in the ancient world. In those days, a child wasn't considered a part of the family as he grew up until he reached the age of majority. In a Roman household, he'd be trained and taught by tutors until he reached a certain age. And then he would be adopted as a son. That is, he would come into his own and he would receive his inheritance. He'd become a full-fledged member of the family. Now, that's what Paul is describing. When, when we see the Lord, when we go to Him or He comes to take us, whichever comes first, we come into our own. We are adopted as His sons, and we enter into our inheritance. We get it all then. That's what Paul is saying. And it is foolish to think we're going to have it now, that we're going to have the perfect marriage, the perfect home, the perfect body. We're going to have perfect health. We're going to enjoy perfect happiness. It is not true. We won't have it until we see Him. Now that's a tremendous encouragement to people who, who, who are are living with bodies that are afflicted, who are chained to, to wheelchairs, those that have MS, those that are going blind, to know this isn't all there is. To those that... that have neurotic personalities, and they, they, they belong to Christ, but they perhaps they've been abused as a child, sexually abused or verbally abused, and they struggle and struggle and struggle. One of these days you're going to come into your own and the struggle will be over. You'll have everything you've ever longed to have. You may not have it in this world, but you'll have it all then. I ran into Jake Jacoby last uh, weekend. I, uh, most of you know of Jake or you know Jake. He used to attend here at Cole. His father is the uh, track coach at BSU. And Jake is an Olympic hopeful, high jumper. And uh, I was at, in the airport in, in Salt Lake, and I just happened to run into him. I hadn't seen him for a while. he has been down in Houston training. And, and uh, we chatted for a while, and, and I was thinking as I looked at him, you know, he was this magnificent uh, specimen of manhood, you know, this, this Finally, highly trained athlete, and he jumps over seven and a half feet. I can't imagine what that's like. I can't even jump seven and a half feet that way, much less up. You know, one of these days, uh, when, we, when Jake and I get our redeemed bodies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take him on. I'm, I'm going to challenge him to a high jumping contest. I'm going to have a body just, just like the body of, of my Lord could pass through space with the speed of thought. See? Unimpeded, unhindered, unharassed. That's, what, that's what's ahead. You see, that's why we can endure present suffering. That's why Paul can say, oh, my present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that's mine when I come into my own. In another place, he calls it his light, momentary Affliction. Light, momentary affliction. And Paul was shipwrecked. He spent 24 hours treading water, waiting for rescue. He was battered. He was beaten with whips. He was stoned. Light, momentary affliction. Ah, but he says it's nothing compared to the glory that's mine. The glory that will be revealed in me when I stand before the Lord. I will then be totally awesome, he says. That's what keeps us going. That's what makes us tough when the going gets tough. We know this isn't all that there is. That's why Paul says this present suffering is not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed when our bodies are redeemed and we're adopted as sons. Now, we don't have that yet, and that's what Paul means in verse 24 and 25. These are difficult verses, and people don't always understand what Paul is saying. But it seems to me fairly simple. He says, for under this hope we were saved. That's what we were saved for. And hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, Paul is saying, this, he's just saying we don't have it now. We have to wait for it. That's all. And dissatisfaction with having to wait for it indicates that we're dissatisfied with God's plan. If we really understand God's plan, then we can, we can wait. We won't be restless. We won't get irritable. We won't get put out and depressed, and discouraged. We'll just keep waiting. Paul says, that's the hope unto which we were saved. My by hope, he doesn't uh, mean any, there's no element of contingency in that word. He's not saying, I hope, I hope, I hope. He's saying, that's my certainty. I'm sure of it. I know that. And I'm waiting for it. This is not all there is. More is coming. Now, uh, in verses 26 through verses 27, he moves on to another uh, topic that... That is the prayer of the Holy Spirit. The first perspective we must maintain is the glory to be revealed in us. The second is the prayer of the Spirit. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And the specific weakness He has in mind is our lack of wisdom. We do not know what we ought to pray or how we ought to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Uh, Creation groans. We groan. The Holy Spirit groans. He identifies with us. We are so integral with the Spirit that when we groan, He Himself groans. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, this is what I think Paul is saying. Uh, Put simply, uh, you just can't go wrong in your prayers. That's all. can't go wrong. When 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 the pressure's on, when we have to live with someone that uh, is very difficult to live with, when we're afflicted in some way physically, uh, when we're having difficulty on, on the job, the, the, the questions come. For what should we pray? Should I pray that, that God will take the pressure off, alleviate the pain, uh, cure me of my ills, heal my body, uh, take this uh, uh, difficult person out of my life? I don't know what to pray for. And most of my pray, prayers are just inarticulate cries. Lord, help. Help. I don't know what to do. Help. But I don't need to worry that somehow God will not know what to do, because I don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. Our Lord knows what's best for us. He reveals that information to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit prays according to the mind of God. I say, Lord, please take this difficult person out of my life. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 uh no, Father, leave that difficult person in David's life because he needs to learn to be more patient. He needs to learn to be uh, a less private person. He needs to be more sensitive, sweeter, easier to get along with. You see, the problem is not the difficult person. David is the difficult person. He doesn't read it. He doesn't realize it yet. So we have work to do in his life, something that's much more intimate and eternal than just uh, release from pressure. Let's touch his soul. Let's begin to change his character in his life, you see. And, and, and that's what Paul means when he says the Holy Spirit prays for us. You see, what God wants is, is to make something of us. We're, we're being groomed for this glory, and all through life we're being changed. More and more we're, we're being turned into the likeness of Christ, and it's these tough times. That are the tools that God uses to shape us and make us what God intends us to be. Uh, I have read before the the poem that I'm so fond of and often read to my men. And unfortunately, it it is written about a man. But if you can if you can turn the man into generic man, then you women are included too. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, to watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tor- tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, How God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. See, that's what Paul is saying. God knows what he's doing. He's infinitely wise. He knows when we need to be left in the circumstances. He knows when we need to be delivered from them. And our in, inarticulate cries, he turns into the proper requests. God hears the Spirit praying for us according to His will, and God then begins to work to make of us the person that that He's destined us to become. Now, that's the second perspective on on pain. The Holy Spirit uh, Holy Spirit's prayers. The third is God's very good plan. Uh, let's read verse twenty-eight. This is this uh, familiar passage. One familiar, I'm sure, to all of you. And we know. Uh, By the way, here's Paul again, being very sure of himself. He's not saying, I think, or uh, I assume. he's, He's certain. I know. He says, I know. We know. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Paul does not say that all things are good. Cancer is not good. Broken marriages are not good uh what Paul is saying is that in all of these things, God is working for our good. The good thing that he's doing is producing glory in our lives, making us the awesome thing that he envisions us to be. That's what he's doing. He takes everything that happens, and these become the tools in his hand to produce good. The key is uh, this happens to those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, he spells out that purpose in the verses that follow. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan is a family, a large family of people who love the Father and who are like Jesus Christ. Our Lord was the first of many. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified. Now, uh, this is a very difficult passage. You can hardly avoid uh, uh, the the problems of uh, sovereignty and free will, election and choice, however you want to describe it. I am not, this morning, going to get into that issue. I'm going to wait for a few weeks till we get to chapter 9. We're, we come face-to-face with it there, and we're going to have to go to the mat and, and grapple with it. But at this point, I don't want to talk about uh, the, the antinomy, the, the philosophic, the logical tension uh, between sovereignty and free will, because we'll miss Paul's point if we do. Paul's not trying to uh, hang us up on some, some theological idea. He's trying to comfort us. Let me tell you what I think Paul is saying. He starts... uh, This is what theologians call the order of salvation. Uh, This is how God gets us from A to Z. From an unregenerate, ungodly state to the glorious being He has purposed that we shall become. That's how we get from A to Z. It begins with God's foreknowledge. You say, well, I know what that means. That means that God foreknew those who would choose Him. And on that basis, He chose them. No, it doesn't mean that at all. can't possibly mean that because that would make God's uh, decision based upon ours. We would be running the universe then. And and furthermore, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say God knew what. It says those whom God foreknew. In, In other words, God foreknew people. God knew some people before. Now, that's precisely the thats the word. He knew before. Now, you know how that word know is used in the Old Testament. It is often used of sexual intercourse. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and she bore a child. to the most intimate, loving relationships between people. So when Paul says God foreknew you, it means that he looked down through eternity, even before you were known, before you were born, rather, and he knew you. He had a loving relationship with you. He had already chosen you to be the one on whom he bestowed his love. And those whom he foreknew... He predestined, Paul says. Now, that's another one of those words that we tend to have trouble with. But really, it, it just means to draw a circle around someone. Uh, the word is pro-arizo. Our word horizon come from, comes from that word. And in fact, it's almost uh, transliteration of the Greek word. And, you know, Greek would stand on the seashore and he'd look off toward the horizon. That's what he would call it. The horizon. That's the limit of his vision. It refers to something you demark. You draw a line or you put a square around something or you somehow you, you mark it off. That's the idea that even before you were born, God drew a circle around you. He loved you first and then he drew a circle around you. And he said, nobody can get into that circle to get you out. And you can't even get yourself out. You're in that circle for eternity. My sister was telling me that uh, uh, my nephew, Levi, was walking across the field the other day. Actually, he's my grandnephew, isn't he? Yeah, he's my grandnephew. My goodness, I didn't know he's that old. Uh, <clears throat> he's walking across the field. And uh, my brother-in-law had, had dug a, a hole for a corner post. and It was about that big around. And it was about six feet deep. And Levi fell into it. He's just a little guy. And he fell into it with his arms over his head like this. And it was so tight, he couldn't get out. And so a, a Pug, that's my sister, she was walking across the field, and she heard coming out of the bowels of the earth, Help! And she looked all around, and she couldn't see anybody. And, and finally, she looked down in the hole, and there was Levi looking up. And uh, she said, Levi, why don't you get out? And he said, I can't. And she had to reach in and, and pull him out. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an illustration of what God does. He, he puts you in a hole. And you can't get out. Now, that illustration breaks down, of course, because <laughs> Levi didn't think he was very safe and secure. But but the point is, you can't even take yourself out of that place. God loves you, and He He puts you in that, that circle of love so that no one can can break in to get you out, not even the evil one. And you can't even take yourself out of that circle of love. And those whom he predestined, he says he predestined to be like Jesus. So it's a sure thing. One of these days, you're going to be just like Jesus. You're going to have a body like his body, like his glorious body. Our bodies are sown corruptible. They are raised incorruptible. They are sown in dishonor. They are raised in honor. They're placed in the ground in ignominious burial, and they're raised a glorious body like the body of our Lord Jesus, you see. And then we'll have a soul and a spirit like His, free from sin and death, free from evil and all the consequences of, of evil. Everything will be will be set right. will be just like our Lord Jesus. And then he says, those whom He... He, he predestined, he called, that's the word that's used for the summons of a sovereign. It's not something that you can ignore. You can't send an RSVP and say, I'm, I'm not coming. You, know, you have to come. That's the point. He, he says, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And it's a real, it's a real call. We respond to it with all of our heart. But behind it is the sovereign will of God. He's calling. He's calling us. And those whom he called, he justified. Now any of you could get up here and give up. 20-minute, 30-minute dissertation on justification by this time. We've been talking about it now for about three months. 32nd dissertation? (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean. Justification is that act by which God declares us to be righteous on the basis of, of our Lord's death upon the cross. Our sins are placed upon Him. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we are forgiven of the past and given a new power to live. So we're justified. And those whom He justified, He, what? Glorified. Anybody get lost in the process? Anyone fall through the cracks? Anyone behind the door when the glory was passed out? No. Now see, our Lord is following us through the whole process. He loved us from the beginning. He put us in a safe, secure place. He called us to Himself. He justified us. And he's going to glorify us. The interesting thing is that Paul uses a past tense verb, an aorist tense verb, actually. And uh, he's doing what I think the prophets did in the Old Testament. It's a well-known grammatical phenomenon that the the prophets used. If some future event was certain, they would very often put it in the past. Grammarians call that the prophetic perfect. They speak of some future event, but they speak of it uh, with finality. It's so certain it's going to happen. They put it in the past tense. It's as though it's already happened. Paul uses that that grammatical element here, I think, when he says, Those whom he justified, he glorified. You cannot miss out. That's the point. Yeah, you know, I, I had such a, a poignant, painful uh, example of this decay of the human body when I saw my father last week. Uh, my father has always been a very strong man. Had a lot of strength in his upper body. And, and uh, to seem uh, he weighs 90 pounds now he's desperately ill sits in a little bay window in, in his house and he looks down over the field where my sister has her horses and, and he groans he just literally groans he would love to be out there riding those horses but he can't see his body is just not up to the desires of, of his mind and his spirit still has that indomitable spirit but his body is just, just not not tracking with, with the rest of his, of his soul and uh, it's tough But, you see, one of these days, he's going to have a glorious body. And that's the promise that Paul holds out for us. We're going to have glory. We're going to participate in the glory that our Lord Jesus had in his resurrected state. We won't be gods. We'll just be like God. We'll we'll share his glory, is the way Paul puts it. Now, what, what can we say? To something like that. What, what sort of response should it should it evoke? Well, the one which Paul makes. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Remember that movie, The Bodyguard. The uh, frail young man who was uh, who was always being teased and tormented by his friends until this big Hulk showed up and became his bodyguard, his protector. I think that's the sort of thing Paul is thinking about. Doesn't make any difference who's against us. Doesn't doesn't matter who your enemies are. Maybe uh, angels or men. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The important thing is that God is for you. Now, how do we know that? How do I know God is for me? I look around at the world and it's red and tooth and claw. And, you know, everything has happened to me. Uh, Tragedy has fallen on me like bricks tumbling out of a truck. It's just one thing after another. And some of you have experienced that that kind of life for the last year. And you know, how can I know that God is for me? certainly doesn't seem to be so. But Paul tells us how we can know. Uh, Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, the demonstration that God loves us is the cross. You'd never look at uh, creation and come to the conclusion that God is good or that God loves us. There's only one event in history that establishes that God loves us, and it's the cross. Where our Lord died for us, where he Where he manifest, where he revealed his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if he, if if God would give his son, will he withhold anything from us? Uh, Verse thirty three: Who will bring any charge against us? Oh, I'm sorry. Verse thirty three: Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Can anyone bring any charge against us that will cause God to reverse His decree of righteousness? No, no. Who is He that condemns? Could it be our Lord when we stand before the Lord? Is He going to point an accusing finger at us and remind us of the things that we did last week or or last night? No, no. As John puts it, He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Who is He who condemns? Could it be Christ? No, no. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us along with the Holy Spirit. He's for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it it is written, for your sake we face face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says our experience every day is that of of enduring circumstances over which we have no control. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He actually coins a word, a word that wouldn't be found in any Greek lexicon of that day. The closest we can come to it is hyper-conquerors. We're hyper-conquerors. We are unconquered and unconquerable. For, he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, all these things over which we have no control, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. Uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Cawkins well describes, uh, uh, well summarizes these, uh, this last paragraph. This is her reflection, uh, upon these verses. God, I may fall flat on my face. I may fail until I feel old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you will hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all his braggadocia, cannot distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't. Disappointment can't. Anguish can't. Yesterday, today, tomorrow can't. The loss of my dearest love can't, death can't, life can't, riots, war, insanity, hunger, neurosis, disease. None of these things nor all of them heaped together can budge the fact that I'm dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Now, that is to me immense comfort. First of all, we need to... We need to remember this isn't all there is. There's glory ahead. Second, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is praying for us according to God's will, and we're not going to get off track. We're going to be taken right to the goal. God's going to produce in us the glory that He's determined to produce. And third, all the tough things that come our way are simply part of the process to make us the glorious being that God has... uh, has determined that that will be and when you have that perspective it gives you a new way of looking at your trials you can look at them and say with paul oh in, in terms of what's coming these are light momentary afflictions the glory is not to be compared with the suffering that i'm uh, experiencing today and uh, when, whenever i read through this passage i always think of of uh, uh what is her name Oh, Fanny Crosby. Okay. I always think of her except when I'm trying to think of her. Uh, Who, as you know, when she was just a child, was blinded. She uh, went through all of her life until she was 95, unable to see. And... uh, uh, Often we don't reflect upon the significance of some of the words of her songs, realizing that they were written out of her her darkness, out of her inability to see. Uh, And one of the songs, I think, that expresses this idea so well is her hymn, Redeemed, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. And then verse 3, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I worship Him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of of my song. When Fanny Crosby was uh, ten years of age, she wrote a little poem. It goes like this. Oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am determined that in this world contented I will be. See, that's waiting. That's hoping. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Ten years of age, facing a lifetime without without sight, and she could say then, as she says later, uh, in her song, "I sing for I cannot be silent." His love is the theme of my song. A lot of people get very very bitter, uh, you know, as as their bodies decay, and and certainly she could start thinking about her life and how how grim and difficult it would be to live without her sight but she knew this wasn't all that, that there is. And then her final, the, the final verse of the hymn, I know I shall see in his beauty. Do you understand the significance of that line? I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Yeah, it was always night for Fanny Crosby. But she could sing in the night because she knew someday she would see the king in his glory. When she saw him, she would be like him. And in her redeemed state as his adopted child, she would come into her own. And she would have everything that she ever wanted. She didn't long in this life for a perfect body or a perfect marriage. She was, she was never married as far as I know. Or, or for children or for family. Or for, for any earthly happiness, she just had that inner joy that comes from knowing that this isn't all there is. And therefore, her present sufferings were light and momentary when compared with the eternal weight of glory. Now, uh, I've been in kind of a befuddled state this morning, but I hope the message has come through. That's That's the important thing. That what we're experiencing today is not worth comparison with what's coming up. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we can echo Paul's uh, sentiments and his feelings. We too groan in our bodies, and we are all waiting for for our redemption. The Lord delivers from the illusion that somehow everything that, that we long for all of our dreams and aspirations will be fulfilled in this life. Help us to realize that, that there is a, an eternal weight of glory in which all of our dreams will be fulfilled. We pray that we'd be delivered from our complaining spirit. We ask that you would replace our despair and our anxiety with joy. We pray that we would live in the light of the Scripture. And that we would pass it on to others who simply do not understand uh, why they're suffering, who cannot believe that you're good and gracious. Help us, Lord, to lead them into an understanding of your compassionate, loving heart. We thank you for this time in Paul's letter. We commit ourselves to you for your purposes today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.